Welcome to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. And welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. And I am super thrilled today to have Ryan Hunt on here. Good morning, Ryan. Hey, Richard. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, Ryan, I think, you know, you and I got a chance to speak uh, uh, not too long ago here. But I think what's so fascinating about today's episode, what I'm super thrilled about is the work that you've you know, kind of grown into. Um, but in the area of, of, of algae, basically, and using that, um, you know, in the context of circular, circular economy, reusable materials and some of the stuff that I've seen that, that you know, kind of ran across here, the transom um, is, is what you've been able to create even in the context of 3D printing and powders and whatnot. So um, really, really fascinating topic to get into. It could, I think it's super timely and it's somewhat interesting in that it's, I think it's kind of overshadowed a little bit um, by some of the carbon and other things people are chasing, which may or may not result in circularity and sustainability, but what you're doing is absolutely in the bullseye sustainability. So super thrilled to have you here today. Um, And so let me just start, I've been rambling for a second there, but Ryan, Maybe just give a quick intro, like, you know, kind of who are you? Who's who's Ryan Hunt? <laughs> Where are you from? How'd you get started in all this stuff? Because it doesn't yeah. probably didn't start as a kid thinking uh, I'm going to get into algae and all things ocean. No, I've always been into technology, but certainly the, the algae angle started in grad school. So, again, I'm Ryan Hunt. I'm the co-founder and chief technology officer of our company, Algix, and our brand Bloom Sustainable Materials. Uh, We work with governments and utility companies to use algae as a tool for environmental restoration. So we like to clean water, absorb and capture CO2, and use that biomass as a replacement for petroleum-based plastics and consumer products. So by using the algae as opposed to oil, we're able to improve the environmental metrics that are defined by what's called a life cycle assessment. And we take the data that comes out of the LCA or life cycle assessment, and we use that to quantify the benefit of switching out petroleum for algae. Uh, Algae is renewable. We're using it in a way that we're recycling the nutrients, this kind of circular approach of taking the pollution from factories, from utility companies, from industry, from agriculture even, and using that as as a nutrient source to grow algae. And then from that restoration process, we then now have a biomass that we can directly replace, to some extent, the use of oil in consumer products. We've been focused on footwear. We've got over 130 brands, uh, footwear brands. Our biggest customer is Adidas or Adidas, depending on what part of the country or world you're in, (laughs) and uh, and Easy and uh, Merrill and, and many others. So we've got a whole host of, of great partners that are you know, putting sustainability first at their companies, trying to find ways to incorporate sustainable materials. Um, but you know, really for me, it started as a biofuel project in 2006. We, I was working on uh, using Chick-fil-A fryer grease to make biodiesel. Uh, as Who a doesn't hobby. like Chick-fil-A before I even go any further? I mean, right there, is, if there's just a small little pop for chick-fil-a man that chicken sandwich it's good before you go into that ryan let me let me let me ask you to back up just a little bit further so i think you've also got an interesting kind of story from well i'm not going to go back to birth or inception uh but but 
you know, where are you from in the country? And then kind of, you know, walk a little bit through, because again, you know, your path is interesting. And especially we have a lot of people who pay, you know, tune in that range from people who are in undergrad all the way up into the graduate, you know, you know, thought leaders, uh, then you're obviously a thought leader, but, you know, since algae, I think is on the horizon, no kidding, you know, something that's really coming into the forefront. A lot of people who might be in their undergrad programs hearing this or listening to this might be, you know, tuning in and going like, what is this algae thing going on here? Like, how did, how did you kind of move from getting in, even in high school into college and then ultimately into this? I mean, that's kind of an interesting tale on itself. Yeah. So I'm from Atlanta, a suburb of Atlanta called Marietta. And uh, I went to college at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. And I've always wanted to be a physicist. So in, in high school, I, I took AP physics. I, I declared my major a freshman in physics. Uh, just always liked the concept of thinking about technical problems at the first principle levels. So what are the fundamental issues? Dial it down to the, to the simple mathematics of any problem. So um, that's kind of how I've been trained to think. So that's how I have approached these challenges. Um, I was actually kind of heading down the route of electric cars in like the early 2000s, 2002, 2003. At that time, it was too early. <laughs> I probably should have mm -hmm. stuck with it. I probably could have been, you know, working a high Tesla by now. But, um, you know, that was that was who my heroes were back then. We're like, you know, the very, very beginnings of when you know Elon Musk bought AC propulsion and, and kind of got me into this realm of alternative energy, renewable energy and sustainability for me started with electric cars, actually. Right. Um, but and, and just, just, a, just a quick, quick clarification there, because in physics and I mean, there's there's a there's a bead I'm looking at. I'm drawing the string here, too. In physics, you can either go big objects or small objects. And if I'm hearing correctly, you went down into the small kind of quantum -y level. I was really interested in quantum and nano. That was kind yeah. of my. My, my angle in, mo in modern physics as well. And so uh, I had a lot of interest in electromagnetics and the effects of electromagnetic propulsion and effects of electromagnetic fields on, on biological systems. Uh, so that was actually kind of what got me initially kind of crossing bio and physics together. I was really, I wanted to get my, my PhD in biophysics, actually. That was like my goal. Um, didn't quite turn out that way. I, I got kind of sidetracked in this whole algae front. So mm -hmm. I started, as I mentioned earlier, I was starting with some making my own biodiesel mm -hmm. just because I thought it was cool to be able to like produce our own fuel. This was like in 2005, 2006. So oil prices were like really skyrocketing at the time. And, um, and then from there, I went to a biodiesel conference and met a guy from the university who was running the engineering program and the outreach. Mm -hmm. So he said, Hey, we're looking for a, student grad student you know undergraduate student to come work in the lab and so one thing led to another next thing you know i'm hired as an undergraduate still in physics but uh working part-time in the bio and ag engineering department focused on turning pine trees into crude oil so the first nine months of my like you know i guess of this career ultimately was actually still in school basically working for a postdoc characterizing bio-based oils that were produced from trees, from pine trees. Hmm. Um, and so that was the initial project. And then that kind of led into, well, if we can do, if we can turn trees into oil, trees grow real slow. <laughs> um, what's the fastest thing that grows? Well, the fastest, most photosynthetically efficient organism is algae. 
<laughs> about 30, over 30,000 species of it. Some of it grow faster than others, but you know, there's certainly a variety of strains that have these incredibly fast growth rates. They don't have to produce stems and roots and branches and bark and flowers and fruit. So all the energy that they absorb, they turn directly into reproducing itself, duplicating and, itself. And just to, just to put a finer point on that, somewhere in there, People were again the problem that 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 you sort of jumped into, and it's a big one, was what can we use as alternatives for oil? And people were kind of playing with all these quote unquote sustainable materials. And somewhere in there, even though they were focused on trees, someone came along in the midst of all this and was like, hey, wait a minute, there's all this material, this biomaterial called algae, right? I mean, shit, we came from the water. Why can't our energy come from the water? And here's this material that's you know in abundance. You know, is that who kind of like sparked that, like, or was it just sort of the natural progression for you to dig into the materials as you just outlined? No, it's okay. Funny, funny story. So, um, really, it was twofold. I was already growing algae inadvertently okay. because I had <laughs> I had five I had five saltwater aquariums in college. So I had a bunch of aquariums and I was battling algae blooms literally almost every day. I mean, every week. And this was just to keep your fish alive. It wasn't necessarily that you were interested in biofuel. You were just like, holy crap, this stuff. I left. I left town for Christmas to go visit my dad. And I was gone for a week. And the algae bloom got so bad, it killed one of my tanks and killed two of my favorite pets. Oh, my God. I had a big big moray eel and a big trigger fish. And Yeah. And so they died because they had an oxygen depletion event. The, the algae got sucked up into the filter and clogged the filter and the whole, the whole thing oh, went no. down and my roommates didn't know what to do and didn't really recognize it at first until it was too late. And <sighs> so anyways, yeah. So that was my first uh, fish personal fish kill was from algae bloom in my, in my apartment in college. And I was wow. like, well, that's what like that. I just cleaned that tank before I left in a week. It went from I mean, somewhat clean to uh, like killing everything. So, um, so that, so I started looking at, I started looking at, well, how fast, like, how does this stuff grow so fast? And then that's when I started doing research. It was like, well, it turns out like algae grows really fast. It can duplicate and double itself in a day or two. So you clean it out all the way, you know, you leave 10% within just a few days, you're all the way back up to almost where you were. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically that was the initial stimulus was dealing with it personally. Uh, but then once I got serious and started looking into it, the uh, federal government from 1970s to 1990s had a program called the Aquatic Species Program. And this was a multi-million dollar funded uh, research program with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. And they were basically researching algae-based fuels and biodiesel and ethanol for for debt for over almost two and a half decades. So that whole 300 page final report was available online. I downloaded it, I printed it out. I That was my nighttime reading in 2006, 2007. So once I saw that and started reading through all the more peer reviewed fundamental research, it was like, all right, yeah, sure. I got a fish tank full of algae, but turns out there's a big opportunity here you know, the, the algae is one of the most ubiquitous organisms on the planet. It's all over. The, it's in every water, every ocean, every sea. It's in the soil. It's in the Arctic. It's in the, the equator. I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, it's actually one of the earliest organisms on the planet. It's been around for mm-hmm. somewhere, they think, around three and a half billion years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is one of the major predecessors that changed life on Earth by delivering oxygen to our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So it's this very, very important class of organism. Yet, as humans, we have really yet to use algae in any productive way 
and certainly right. back in 2007. I mean, it was just kind of the early days. So right. Um, right. there was a big resurgence in 2007, 2008, and kind of up till about 2014, really, where you know hundreds of millions of dollars got dumped into algae startups, algae research and grants, Department of Energy, DARPA was putting money into this, um, really focused on biofuels. Uh-huh. What turned what ended up happening was that it, you know, scalability was the challenge and oil price fluctuations were the challenge. So while the price of algae oil did come down and did drop and there was a lot of improvements and was a lot of innovation, it still was relatively expensive uh, and it required a lot of capital to build up to get the cost down. And so, you know, no one was really ready to drop a, a billion dollars on an algae farm yet. Um, some people dropped the 200 million, like, you know, Sapphire put, uh, you know, I think 200 or $250 million into their 100, 300 acre facility out in New Mexico. Um, so there was some of that starting to happen, but really as it started to like kind of come to a precipice in 2014, the oil prices collapsed again. And when the oil prices collapsed, basically biofuels dried up. And um, and then for us, even the plastic, you know, plastic prices dropped big time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for polymers, and, but, 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 a, but, but a, 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 you're describing a similar problem that most renewables have had. Right. It's a, it's really it's not a question so much. And we always talk about cost. But if you peel the onion even a little bit further, it's actually scale. Right. I mean, it, it, which is truly what drives the cost down. And unfortunately, yeah, people are un, right. Exactly. It's 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 not that the, it, it, the cost will be driven down as you scale something up. Renewables like solar, uh, even car batteries like lithium. Right. I mean, that's until we hit certain scales. Right. The pricing parity against existing systems was not fair. So like there's sort of like a ramp up time. You have to allow something to get to that our impatience as a species. <laughs> <laughs> you know, prevents us from doing what's the right thing, even though it's obvious. So I've, I even made a chart to try to help people kind of conceptualize this. And I think that the, the folly that was made in the early days was that we were going to produce, we were going to be able to scale basically infinitely big, infinitely fast and right. deliver to the cheapest product on the planet, gasoline, right? right? And gasoline is like our, like our combustible fuels are, yeah, we think they're expensive. They're really cheap, especially when you look at it on a weight basis per pound. I mean, a a gallon of gasoline weighs about seven pounds or so, Mm -hmm. seven and a half pounds, right? It only costs, you know, well, two to $4 or $5 per per gallon. So you're talking about sub dollar per pound, Mm -hmm. you know, 50 cents per pound or even less for a pretty complicated product that's distributed around the globe. So um, that has to meet all these very, very pure specifications. So getting algae to deliver that at that price range and with, and with the stability and the robustness of those price fluctuations, it's really hard. So we said early on, we saw two, two fundamental issues. One was that when the algae is blooming, when there's a bloom of algae, which would mean that it's growing in this exponential growth rate, it's absorbing nutrients, it's gobbling up CO2, it's doubling itself rapidly, um, when that happens, the biomass that we that grows does not have a lot of oil in it. So this okay. whole concept of growing algae super fast and then taking all that algae and turning it all into fuel, just right off the bat, it's not really good. It's not really how it works. Um, the easiest way to do it is to have a species of algae that naturally contains oils that are conducive to, to being converted into fuels like triglycerides, you know, fats okay. that are that, that yep. can be transesterified into biodiesel as an example to get that normally you're looking at best case 20 percent yield 
So 80% of your algae that you're growing is not part of the fuel equation to begin with. Then you got to get that at 20%. You got to refine it. You got to purify it. You've got to transester, like all this processing goes along to get it into the right form to be able to use the car engine. That takes mm-hmm. time, money, effort, energy, et cetera. So, um, so we kind of saw that as like, all right, you know, yes, maybe that could work, but let's focus on the 80% fraction. What's the, what are we going to do with all that biomass that's, that's left over? A lot of people are focusing on how to make the oil and how to make the fuels. You know, maybe that'll maybe that'll come to scale. But if we don't figure out what to do with the 80 percent fraction and how to cross this chasm of death to find a market that doesn't require super, super, super cheap products, how do we get mm-hmm. more value out of that material? And mm-hmm. so that's when we started looking at animal feeds, at fertilizers and ultimately at materials. And mm-hmm. so the materials one really perked my interest because as a physicist, thermoplastics and materials, a lot of it's physics, it's, it's thermodynamics, it's, it's chemistry, it's physics. Um, and so to me, I understood it. I was like, all right, I could read the research papers and, and, and grasp what they were trying to do and what the properties were. So when you start looking at a material, the simple equation is that it's a lot more valuable per pound compared mm-hmm. to gasoline. It could mm-hmm. be five times more valuable per pound and gasoline. So right off the bat, you're fine. But the value, but the value you're depicting though, I'm almost seeing like a pie chart of all the different use cases. 20% might be actually using for combustion engine. And by the way, I'm going to footnote that one because there's a question I'm going to come back to that. So okay. maybe, maybe it could be used for you know combustion engine type things or combustion in general to generate power. Or yep. these other 80% of the algae could be used for different things like actual materials, like a replacement for plastics or things of that nature. So therefore, whereas when we look at gas or oil, oil and its refined products, it has one use case pretty much. Yeah. Both. Yes. Right. I mean, when you have a barrel of oil, there's a lot of that oil that does go to polymers. I mean, there's a, it's right. not a huge fraction. The majority does go to fuel, but there's a ch- chunk that goes to polymers. So, but the per pound price of a polymer, you know, with gasoline, maybe it's 50 cents, you know, on a good day. We're talking about $1, $2, $3. In some cases, we're getting up to $5 per pound. Wow. So that's wow. up to 10 times the value of right. the raw material. And of course, but you know, that only works. So, so then when we looked at taking the algae into materials, it's like, all right, well, I mean, polymers is this massive field as well. There's cheap mm-hmm. polymers, there's expensive polymers. So what do you want to mm-hmm. play in? There's polymers mm-hmm. that have high volume and high market and there's small, you know, there's niche stuff. So as a startup, you're always, I mean, you always want to focus on niche markets to start mm-hmm. with, just because the big commodity stuff is too cheap, it's too competitive, it's too big, you know, focus on niche. Um, but us really not knowing that much. I mean, we kind of came in as complete newbies into this market. We're not, I'm not a, I'm not a polymer engineer. I'm not a polymer scientist. I'm not a, you know, commercialization mm-hmm. manager. I'm a, you know, I'm a scientist. So, right. so we looked at it and said, all right, let's take the algae, let's blend it. And we started making these compounds that are mm-hmm. half algae, half, half polymer. And right. when we did that, we were able to get much better material properties from the algae that kind of mirrored or mimicked the base properties of that polymer. And so mm-hmm. we selected kind of like four major classes. We, we selected the, the cheap commodity polypropylene that is used everywhere. It's the workhorse mm-hmm. around the world for plastics. And we were able to blend algae with polypropylene. Okay. We were able to blend algae with polyethylene, another workhorse across the industry, uh, as well as recycled versions of polyethylene. Um, we then were looking at bioplastics. What if we wanted to get into packaging? So we started blending algae with PLA. 
PLA is a corn-based or sugarcane-based uh, polymer uh, that's used in packaging and other applications. So we were making some injection moldable parts, mostly for, at the time, flower pots was kind of our goal. Was being, oh, okay, we're making biodegradable flower pots. It just seemed like something easy to make to prove the concept. Um, so we were making PLA. And then the last one was kind of a wild card. We just picked it because of the, of the spec sheet. I didn't really know much about it, but it's a material called EVA. It stands for ethylene vinyl acetate. Most people have never heard of it, but I would guarantee it's probably, you're probably wearing it right now. It's okay. the flexible foam that's used pretty much in every sneaker in the world. Oh. So if you, if you have a sneaker, if you have a tennis shoe, if you have an athletic shoe or even many casual shoes or even flip-flops, mm -hmm. they're made of EVA. And EVA is, about, EVA is made of 80% polyethylene. A run of the mill, one of the biggest plastics in the world, uh, mixed with a little bit of what's called vinyl acetate, which is uh, it kind of helps it get flexible okay. and rubber. So it gives you this flexible foam, um, but it had a lower melting temperature and it had this polarity that made it compatible with the algae. And so we started blending with EVA in the, really the very first trials that we did, not quite realizing what that would turn into, but just picking it because it played well with the algae and we could make cool dog. Yeah, we could make these these um. These cool dog bones. Here's a dog bone that I made in like 2011. So it's, I need it's one pretty of those. old. My dog needs one. Yeah. And, you know, so like that was, that's 50% algae and it still feels and, and performs and lasts like the durability is as good as, as the normal EVA for the most part. So um, now if we did the same part in PLA, it would mm -hmm. be biodegradable, it would be compostable, and the algae accelerates the rate of degradation. However, what we found was that in the early days, we were very much focused on bio-based materials. And it was just for us commercially, it was tough because no one really wanted to pay more. Bioplastics mm -hmm. always cost more. And B, they didn't, they had they had a specific performance specification that needed to be met. Mm -hmm. And we're very limited in the types of performance that these bioplastics currently are offering. So we never were able to hit the spec. And when you when you can't hit the spec, if your product doesn't mechanically perform to their needs, right. the project's right. done. So right. we struggled for years trying to get these biodegradable compounds out into the market. We, ne we, we, we failed. We never were successful to do it. It wasn't until 2016 that we started talking with Nike and Adidas that things really started to turn around. They said, oh, you can do EVA? You can do foams? Like, yeah, sure. Like, we can try that. We can explore that. We know EVA works well. And, um, and so Adidas started opening some molds for us in Asia at some of their partner factories. And we got real excited and we're like, all right, yeah, this is going to be great. We're going to go, uh, sell all, we're going to get a big purchase order from Adidas and, you know, we're going to say, you know, we're going to make it across the, cha the chasm of death and we're going to be a successful company and this thing's good. We're actually going to do it. You know, we, just, we all got excited in 2016. Then like the reality struck that's like, oh, wait, you know, Adidas doesn't actually make anything. They design mm -hmm. stuff, they market stuff, they distribute stuff, they 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 do a lot of stuff. But actually, making shoes is not one of the things they do. Um, the majority of the sh of the shoes, basically, the vast majority of shoes in the world, they're all made by independent third party Chinese owned factories, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, Vietnam started getting some more kind of over the past couple of years, but then with last year with COVID shutting down Vietnam for over a quarter, a lot of that business has flown back into China. It started to trickle back into Vietnam, but either way, whether it's China, Vietnam, Indonesia, you know, that's where the production's at. And sure. it's not, and those aren't factories that are like, it's not like it's a Nike factory or it's an Adidas factory. These are factory names you've never heard of. Right. And so, yeah, right. um, 
so yeah, so then, so kind of getting to the supply chain part, we had the root, the, you know, the, the root awakening that's like, oh, this is going to be way harder than just right. signing a PO with, uh, with Adidas. Like that's, it does right. not that easy. Um, right. So that, so we then uh, started going to China. We started, uh, we set up our own wholly owned foreign entity. Uh, we, we, we hired local footwear professionals that were, you know, China na- nationals. And, uh, and we, and we started working with these factories. Mm-hmm. It took us about a year to get the first factory to say yes to work with us. It was really mm-hmm. hard. Nobody really wanted to do business with us and nobody really yeah. wanted to buy our material. Um, the brands had to demand it, that their yep. factories used it. And then we had to kind of go to the factory and, you know, dr- shake the hands and drink the tea and drink the baijo and do the whole, do the whole dance <laughs> to get, you know, build the trust with these guys, yeah. um, which started. And, and then after we got the first factory, the second one was a little bit easier. Yeah. Third one, a little bit easier. And then it started to yep. snowball. And then as more and more brands started asking about it, like the whole floodgates opened. And right now we're over 400 partner factories wow. that are buying wow. or at least have, have, have at one point purchased our material and used it. Now, not everybody's active. Yeah, we've got a, probably a couple dozen of factories that we consider our preferred factories. These are the guys we have the most relationship with, the most trust. They've done the best job. They, they, they're competitive. They, they're, they're fair uh, for the most part. So at least as far as we can tell, cause we can't really go there, you know, so. All right. But so, timing, yeah. timing, yeah. timing, you know, one of these things again here is timing. Cause if you did this 20 years ago, I don't know if you'd have this success. And then there's a persistence of course, right. Sort of chance favors the prepared, but let me circle back for a second and we're going to come back to where you're at, which is, at the, I'm going to go into your particle physics kind of a little bit here. So one of the things when I look at the system here is we're trying, we are looking for, we always talk about oil and renewables, right? And oil, for lack of a better term, is a material that we as a species have figured out how to use primarily as a fuel for combustion, but then also has a bunch of materiality to it, right? We've, because we use so much of it so often, we've been trying to figure out how to use this stuff. Okay, great. Got it. But what I, where I'm going to here is there's two things. One, you're solving for a couple different problems. One is if I look at oil as a substance in all its use cases, is there a comparable substance that I can map against it in all the use cases of oil? And that's one way to look at this because oil does combustion. It does, you know, some material for plastics. It does other use cases. I'm sure if I created a chart, oil does these three, four, five things, right? And that are pretty like systemic to everything that we do, right? And so one one challenge is, is there a material that is out there that can be applied the same in all the different use cases oil can as efficiently and as effectively as oil can. That's one, one problem we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. But then a second problem, which I think is left off the table, which is kind of an interesting one is we're still, we're still predicating all our energy use case number two on combustion and combustion engines. Now yeah. call me silly, but that hasn't changed at all. Right. It was, I start to move into now electric vehicles and thinking about electric. This is really the first deviation from a combustion engine because if i'm just going to explode something to get power and this is where i get into the particle physics things i know there's infinitely more uh uh efficient particles and compounds if i'm just like nuclear for example right i mean for god's sakes nuclear's got a really bad rap but the the physics behind nuclear energy to this day and correct me if i'm wrong here you're the particle physics is like the most efficient as far as generating power is concerned, 
and you got fission yeah. and you got the developments in fusion happening right now. So there's a lot. Right. Yeah. So right. I, mean, I, I had that epiphany in grad school where it was, this was kind of back going back to my, the, when they, when Tesla basically got founded, I was following Tesla in 2006 uh, when they, when Elon bought them and it kind of turned, it was, they basically bought AC propulsion. And uh-huh. so he, he kind of started advertising the Roadster as this right. high performance electric vehicle. And I remember sitting in our, in our lab telling my other colleagues, I like, Hey guys, check out this car. If this is successful. It's going to change the trajectory of vehicles. We're not going to be burning our valuable carbon yes. for energy. We're going to be right. using a much more efficient system to, to yep. do it, to convert yep. basically to make mechanical motion versus mm-hmm. an internal combustion engine. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's really, uh, that's really that was that was critical in my path. It was like, okay, fuels is not. I don't think we're, the demand for fuel is going to be as high as we think it is long term. These mm-hmm. other technologies are going to surpass it in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the performance of modern day electric cars way outperforms any of the even the high performance gasoline cars. Totally. I mean, the fastest car in the world is a Tesla sedan, right? Basically, right, right, right. right. And um, mechanically, let's also talk. I mean, even again, this is where I think a lot of people miss out on some of the innovation that's going on. But just like you said, mechanically. An electric vehicle, again, love them or hate them, right? But mechanically, it does not break down nearly as much, right? I mean, everything about it is just more efficient. But yet, yeah. the combustion engine is so like, I mean, it's almost like people forget the fact that the world runs on this idea of a combustion engine, right? And that's one of the biggest reasons why we still use oil to this day. Let's go back to your comment a second ago, because I want to talk about that for a second. So you you mentioned like what kind of with oil, we get so many important things out of it. We get plastics, we get fuel, we get, you know, specialty chemicals, solvents, all this stuff. Um, Is there a is there an equivalent in a a renewable pillar, basically? I guess the the fundamental point that I want to make is that what is what is oil? Where did oil come from? It's in, in many cases, the petroleum are ancient algae blooms that have been sequestered in geological sur- structures and have had massive amounts of heat and pressure and time to convert all that biomass into what we now call petroleum. Interesting. Um, so, you know, so in a way, really, we're running the entire society off algae blooms, but from the past. Coal is just forests. You know, wood, it's more lignant, it's more wood. It's, you know, it's a little bit different than petroleum, but those, but specifically the petroleum, they're linking it to mostly algae blooms from, you know, millions of years ago. So in that regard, if we could produce algae blooms today at the same quantity and at the same, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, quality, I guess, and have a process like thermochemical liquefaction or these thermochemical conversion processes that apply heat and pressure really do what the earth has been doing, but in an accelerated reactor right. way, which I right. know people doing this. I've, I worked on this a little bit in college myself. Um, then we can produce a bio oil, just like I was doing with the pine trees, hmm. but doing it with oil and doing it with, with algae rather and producing an oil that um, is similar to, tr- to crude oil. Now the only, hmm. there's some differences though. What we found was that, one of the main, major differences is that when something's when algae's that old and that buried and has that much time, the oxygen all gets used up. There's really not a lot of oxygen in oil. It's gone. It's been consumed. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do find in renewables is a lot of oxygen. So when you mm-hmm. still have 
modern kind of living things. They have oxygen in them. If you go and ram that straight through one of these thermochemical conversion processes, you end up with an oil that has a lot more oxygen in it. So that oxygen ends up causing a bunch of problems, causing shelf life, causing oxidation. It gums. It is. It's a bunch of problems. So. For, and I'm not necessarily an expert in this, but for what I understand, the research that I have friends that are experts in this is that they are looking at different catalysts okay. that can essentially remove the oxygen and produce an, a crude oil that's more similar to what you'd find in, in, in out of the ground. Um, mm-hmm. But then the big challenge is that, okay, and this is, I think, where the, where the kind of the rubber meets the road, which is the hard part, is that, okay, I think there's processes and there's some teams around the country and around the world that have been able to show they can take algae biomass or other biomass and make a crude oil out of it. But to, to really scale that, you need a, a refinery, you need a billion-dollar right. oil refinery. Right. And these startup companies and the oil companies, they're not doing this together. These are typically two different efforts. So the right. small guys are like, all right, we don't want to use oil. We want to use algae. They don't have access to the billion-dollar refinery to really mm. scale it up. Mm. And the big guys that are doing it, you know, they're doing their thing. They're, yeah, you know, they're maybe dabbling in algae and looking at it from an R&D and from a marketing perspective. But are they really like building that whole thing to move the whole society and the whole planet forward? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's mm-hmm. something going on behind the scenes that we don't really know about, but it's been slow. And, you know, it, and it's, it's going to take a lot of capital to scale up. Now, I, I did talk to one of my, actually my postdoc friend that I went to school with recently. He was telling me that in India, uh, they were working with some oil companies that were taking the algae and non-recyclable plastic waste, putting it through these thermochemical processes, generating a bio-oil, and then blending that with normal crude oil at about 10%. So not, okay. not so minor, minor amount, but again, at a, at a refinery. So big yep. volumes compared to what yep. we're talking about in the laboratory, yep. running that crude oil with this supplemental, like, you know, bio oil or re- recycled plastic oil, whatever you want to call it, putting that through a refinery. Mm-hmm. And then he was telling me that they basically were able to make your normal products with minimal issues. Uh-huh. Basically, that oil was compatible with the the traditional infrastructure. So then it's like, okay, that's true. Then it's a question of scale. How do we get right. enough algae at a facility that can actually run this thing at scale? And so you know, right. we're working with companies like AECOM, massive engineering global engineering firm. They've got uh, grants with the Department of Energy and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and some other private companies. Uh, on two things. One, we're working, we're working with them on harvesting algae. Mm-hmm. And then once the algae is produced, they're like, all right, well, we can either sell it to bloom and we'll buy it and put it into shoes and sneakers and consumer products. Or um, we also, are, they're also working on turning it into oil for the department of energy uh, with some of these other partners. So some of that, so some of that work is still going on, but it's, you know, it, it's going to require some major capital investment for the bloom side what we do and what we saw and how we really have positioned our technology and business is we're the low hanging fruit is the, mm-hmm. like we're directly incorporating the natural algae into these products. So right. I'm not, I'm not saying we're not harvesting algae and turning it into EVA or turning it into mm-hmm. a plastic or turning it into some specific compound, refining it. No, we're taking the natural algae, the natural protein that's in that algae. These proteins are polymeric by nature, naturally polymeric. And we're using heat and pressure in an extruder to essentially open up those proteins, 
flow align them with the base polymer, start to get them to kind of play together. And then the algae starts to pick up the properties of the base polymer. So we blend it with EVA, we get something that kind of acts like EVA at the end. And then we just drop that right into the existing supply chain. We bag it, we ship it to the factory, the factory incorporates into the product. And for every, you know, kilogram of the balloon pellets that are being used, we clean over 2000 liters of water in the process. And we capture over its weight and CO2 emissions. So it's about right right now, our LCA shows that for every kilogram of balloon pellets being used, you're sequestering 1.7 kilograms of CO2 from the atmosphere. And and just to be clear, to to, to put a finer point on that, when you say a pellet, your product is the, are these balloon pellets, which are ultimately incorporated or ground into the materials at the refining manufacturing facility right to 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 complete the 100% of the material right so 10% or 5% or 20% of it is bloom algae pellets yeah the, yeah, the bloom the bloom pellets are about half algae half polymer the polymer is whatever the company's already using that makes it miscible makes it compatible oh, I see. If, you, it. if you use something that's not compatible or you just try to use the algae directly yeah. It doesn't really work, unfortunately. Right, right, It'd be great if it right. did. Like we'd love right. it. Maybe a lot easier for well, us. Well, but in time. I mean, but you're you're also competing against, you know, what, 80, 90 years of of oil petroleum refinement where they've been working. Yeah. I, I guarantee you petroleum didn't come out of the gate and they figured, like, oh crap, let's turn it into plastics. You know what I mean? Like that took yeah. how many decades to figure that out and refine it and refine it and refine it and refine it. So, I mean, again, you know, the point, the point being here. Okay. So, so, so I also want to be conscious of time because I know we can go for hours and hours here. So I want to, I want to pull back a little bit to again, kind of this, this, this sort of decision tree. So algae though, and correct me if I'm wrong here in the history of our exploration, algae has been here forever and, you know, God forbid, it's probably the foundation of, of, of life as we know it. Right. So so the fact that we're actually getting back to the roots, I find it fascinating that petroleum, I hadn't even thought of it, is actually algae. It's just it's just been a refined earth has refined it right over a certain period of time. Right. And yeah. we haven't figured out how. But in fact, you're going back to the source. You're like, all right, I'm going back to algae. Right. So initially, though, algae was explored. If I'm in the history of it in the last, say, 20, 30, 40 years as a, as a, as a food, as a fuel source, and now a material. So somewhere in there, we, you figured out like, okay, people have been hunting for fuel alternatives. People have been hunting for food alternatives. Oh, we actually have a material alternative here. Cause that's a newer, I think, application of algae in a way that's probably in the last like 10 years that people have started to kind of go down that road or help, help, help kind of build the history of, of that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think we were probably one of the first that we filed patents in 2009 at the University okay. of Georgia using the algae as a thermoplastic composite. Uh-huh. So prior to that, when we were doing all of our prior art research back then, I mean, people were people have been using seaweed in composites. Right. So that right. was that was that was out there and mostly based on the cellulose. Uh, certainly uh, soybeans. So the protein rich soybean meal has been used as a composite material and thermoplastics as well uh, as cornmeal and, mm-hmm. and potato starch. And so there, there was yep. prior to us starting, there was already, you know, a couple decades of lab and early startup bioplastics. And yep. so the, the but the unique angle that we looked at for the algae was that the, pro, the high protein content, those proteins are polymer chains of amino acids. Hmm. So the protein is a polymer. And when we 
first started looking at the algae, and it was, I guess, it was a quick little story. I was working with a different postdoc from the material science department at the university. Mm-hmm. He came to our office. He just started the university and he came to our lab. I gave him a tour and he had mentioned, hey, by the way, my my, my PhD was on turning uh, turkey and like poultry waste into plastics. So he was taking bone meal, blood meal, and feather meal, all the leftovers that are basically like kind of high protein powders, really, and that come out of this, out of the the poultry industry. It's a big problem, big waste product. What do you do with this stuff? And he was compression molding it and making little plaques, little bars, little test bars out of it. And so he told me about that. I said, well, that's funny because that high protein content is similar to algae. Algae right. has high protein as well. It's not animal-based, it's plant-based. Right. Um, but it's a plant-based protein. Maybe it can work as well. And so I had this big tub of algae that was left over from all of our oil extraction work. That was the 80% fraction that we were trying to right. like figure right. out what to do with. In fact, it was actually a 93% fraction because we only got 7% oil yield, not 20. So it was even worse. We were more motivated to find an alternative because there really, yep. really wasn't much oil in this algae when it's being grown in wastewater. Yep. Um, and so when it's growing fast, it's producing protein, not oil. So we looked at the protein and we and I, and I worked with this professor. We got a little compression molding. We did some samples. We made some little dog bones, 100% algae. It worked. It made a little bar. It, and then we took that little bar and we put it on what's called a dynamic mechanical analyzer. It's basically like strumming it like a guitar string. You're, you put it in a little mount and basically it has a little uh, piece of metal that comes down and vibrates the bar. And as okay. it vibrates, it essentially measures the stiffness and the energy return of the okay. part. So as right. you deflect it, does it, pound, does it bounce back? Right. If it bounces back, that's a key characteristic that you have a viscoelastic material, also known as a plastic, right? Got it. Even though it's not traditionally what we call a plastic in the sense right. that it's not polyethylene. Right. Um, the problem with it was that it was rather brittle. It would bend, it would come back, but you bend it too far, it would snap very easily. So all the initial samples I had that are 100% algae, they're all broken because the second anybody went with their hands trying mm-hmm. to flex it, it would just snap. Mm-hmm. So um, I had one of these little fractions of a piece that was my like, you know, part of the project. I kept my desk as a little memento. Yeah, right. I showed it to um, this local entrepreneur that was helping me with a um, an ultrasonic project as well. And he was from the packaging industry. And I told him, hey, you know, this little sample, I was like, we just made this. We're making like plastic out of this algae somehow. It's kind of cool. And he got all excited. He's like, oh, man. He's like, you know, I work for massive packaging companies. I, I do business with Walmart, Coca-Cola, Pepsi. These guys are all talking in these private board meetings. I have meetings with these companies. They're asking us about bioplastics from a filling packaging company perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like if you could produce an algae-based plastic and, and our equipment could use that as, as packaging, we could fill it. We can take basically connect you with the with these big brands and we could maybe you know work together and start something up. So that kind of that conversation evolved. And um, and it's kind of funny because this is ultimately the, the other co-founder of Algex. This is Mike Van Jurnen. So Mike, I remember Mike was like, Hey Ryan, you know, he's like, we're looking for guys like you and our team. You know, we, mm-hmm. we need, we need, we need smart guys like you on our team. And I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm going to get a job right. out of college, go right. work with a big company. Well, it turns out it was just him and me. There was no, big, right. it was just like him and me in a garage, basically doing startup mode. So, sure. uh, which actually honestly was better because it gave us a blank sheet. It gave us a blank yep. sheet and we said, all right, let's do this. You know, so once I kind of figured out what was going on, I was like, all right, this is, 
basically straight into startup mode. So yep. I, I graduated with a master's. I gave up on the PhD, which I was, uh-huh. I was on PhD track. I kind of said, you know what? I'm going to forgo the PhD. I'm going to get into industry. I'm going to go ahead and try, try the startup world, see yep. how it goes. Yep. Um, that was 2010. And wow. so we basically realized we had a pretty far uphill battle. No <laughs> supply chain, no robust algae supplies, uh, no real customers, uh, no real factory. Uh, you know, technology still lab scale. <laughs> you know, like every every headwind you can imagine we were faced against, you know, didn't really have a lot of one like we're personally wealthy. I was a grad student. I had no money. Yeah. I was like yeah. money, right? Um, so Mike was good. He was able to get us some capital. He hired me. I was full time, I was the only guy for two years trying to get the whole thing going. Um, we hired a few uh, others, another scientist, a chemist, and um some bits, you know, some other few other people to help kind of get going. Um, and then finally in 2014, we built, we built the factory, which they kind of tell us never to do this, but we did the total. If you build it, they will come. We <laughs> realized we didn't build it. Like no one's ever going to take it seriously. Right. And, right. you know, and we can't, re- and the, the development of not building it and, and working like with all these different people, it was so expensive and so complicated and you're shipping material around. Like it, it, it was, it was not so easy. And we, we did that for a couple of years, but ultimately in 2014, we're like, all right, we just got to bite the bullet and we got to build right. something. So right. we raised about $12 million and built this biocomposite oh facility in Mississippi and just jumped off the deep end and said, let's do this. Good for um, you guys. Well, I mean, that's the, Hey, welcome to, welcome to startup land. Welcome to being an entrepreneur. So, so let me dive in a little bit too, because, and again, to be clear here, a lot of people might have heard, and just to just to just to get get real clear, people think algae or bloom or whatever algae bloom, and they're thinking fuel. But you guys are actually really looking at materials, right? So oh, you right, it's one hundred percent materials. You are a substitute or an alternative to quote unquote petroleum based plastics or an additive to it. And so as of now, that you're because over here can be fuel. Right. Still. Right. Like some, yeah. that's someone else's problem to go figure out. You want to go take this material and use it as an alternative combustion source to oil or gas or whatever. Feel free. But we're going to work on materials here because plastics are in everything. You know, what's the biggest single biggest ocean polluting uh, uh, material is plastic. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, what's the thing that we need to figure out how to, you know, recover and reuse? Well, plastics, of course. Right. And I mean, here's a here's a fabulous story. How to do it. So today you're in sort of athletic wear. You talked about Adidas. Um, you know, I'm sure you already know this, but Nike, you know, the guy who's running Nike right now, John Donahoe, um, he was the ex CEO of eBay. I happened to be there at the time when he was there. He is a massive renewable circularity guy. Right. Um, in fact, he he was the reason um, we greenlit a um, uh, um, natural gas uh, primary fuel source for our data center in Utah, right? Which at that time, uh, funny enough, the name was Bloom Energy, right? Uh, Bloom Energy builds, yeah, they're a fuel cell. um, And they took a while to build, but now they're kind of everywhere, you know, in fuel cell technologies. But we at eBay were the first actually to decouple our data center from the grid and use just Bloom fuel cells and natural gas, right? And it was just a couple cents more, but, you know, at these commodity levels, that makes a huge impact. But Donahoe, as the CEO, greenlit the project even though he knew it was in slightly more expensive than our traditional, because he knew it was the right thing to do. 
So I think you're also seeing leaders show up at companies like John at Nike or whoever you're working at Adidas, whoever else, that are starting to actually make the decisions that are more for the betterment. They see the long term 10 years down the road, not the immediate quarterly uh, adherence to Wall Street. So the I mean, that's a great point. So right now we're seeing the publicly traded companies are under intense pressure by their investors, particularly the private equity groups, the family yeah. offices that are putting big money in it. And you know, the primary investors, a lot of these companies, uh, they are requiring what's called ESG reporting. So they want you to basically measure what's your environmental performance, what's yep. your social performance, you know, what do those metrics look like? What are you doing to measure and capture your impact? both in terms of like your operation, as well as your supply chain. Because all these companies, right. like I said, they actually make the products. So you got to look at like, yeah, the office, the design studio, the logistics. Yeah, that's like under your control. That's kind of like a class one. But then when you look at these, these uh, downstream, you know, uh, other elements, that has to be pulled in too. And so when you look, when you bring all that together, um, the ESG reporting and measurement is great for us because two things. One, it means the big companies, if they don't measure how they're performing, they're performing environmentally and socially, and if they don't measure it and they don't show improvement on it, the big investment banks are, are divesting. They have specifically, yep. BlackRock has said, we are divesting out of companies that are not measuring and improving their ESG. Like yep. it's very, very simple. So all the when I talk to our publicly traded customers, not, we have a lot of small brands that are not publicly uh-huh. traded, but our big customers uh-huh. are Wolverine, Adidas, Nike, others, Polaris. When you talk to these brands, it's like they get it. They understand uh-huh. they've got to be pioneering this and be in the forefront and pushing it forward. Because if they, if they don't, if they're not pushing it, it's going to be pushed onto them. And they'd yeah. rather be driving it than having to deal with somebody else, some regulator doing it. Um and so I think that those reports are really insightful because they require the company to do some due diligence on their impacts. Yep. And so it's really hard when you lack transparency in your supply chain. A lot of the brands, I mean, not the big brands maybe have a little better feel for it, but a lot of brands we talk to, I mean, when it all starts getting made in China, like you don't quite know exactly where this yeah. is coming from, who's touching it, how many people are touching it, are they, how old are they? Like there's a lot totally. of that you really can't, it's kind of murky. Uh-huh. And so there's a lot of risk there. And uh-huh. so for us in Bloom, what we found our advantage is that we can certify a product that is verifiably better for the environment yep. and measure and track that product through the production of the algae, the conversion of the Bloom pellets, the shipment to the factories, and then the projects with the brand. So we know how many pairs of shoes that brand is going to order with Bloom. We know which factories it goes to. We The factories are supposed to give us information back on how many pairs they're producing. We yep. match that up with the brand. And then we can tell the brand, okay, for this season, you clean this much water, you reduce this much CO2 emissions based on you buying 10,000 kilograms of bloom, as an example. But a fabulous, but that's just, yeah, but that's, that's, I mean, you've just, you, you just nailed what every, I don't know what you want to, I don't know, the sustainability officers or the C-suite at these companies are looking for, right? I need an alternative material, but I also need to score it so I can show my progress, right? Which is a critical piece to this, right? Because, you know, my former life in data centers, we had a little metric called PUE and that metric called power utilization efficiency 
really was the inflection point when data centers went from largely inefficient design to super hyper-efficient designs, right? But it was one, yeah. one piece of data. And when people started publishing that, scoring against it, you can map exactly that inflection point of, 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 of drive towards the innovation towards uh, sustainable uh, data center designs. But let me, let me because I, I knew we were going to run into this and, and I'm looking at the time here and there's so many things I want to get into. But before I do, I, want, I do want to get this one in here, which is, so again, we're talking about materials. I'm going to fast forward a little bit because typically I sort of do a sequence, but I'm going to jump ahead, which is, okay, you guys are an algae, you're, 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 you're providing materials, you're already kind of established, you're putting in shoes, consumers, whatever. But you also talked about pellets. And where I'm going to now is, and we talked a little bit about this, is, is 3D printing, right? So if I look at where the puck, you know, where the net's going to be, right? If I, if I think about where the net is going to be, one of the big game changers of the next, you know, whatever, this decade of supply chain is going to be 3D printing. Right. And I'm not sure a lot of people really see that for what it is, but that's going to upend the supply chains as we know it in how how and where stuff is produced. And those that are supplying those 3D printers with the powders capable of creating the materials that everyone wants. Well, shit, they're going to be winners. Where are you guys in looking at that? So we started our own 3D printing company. We had it for a few years. We were focused on filament based FDM yep. style printers. So these are the ones yep. that use the weed whacker string that gets melted. So it's a thermoplastic process. Everything that we do is thermoplastics. Uh, we were making all of our 3D printer filaments with bio-based and biodegradable polymers, typically PLA, uh, PB, uh, PBS, or uh, PBAT. Uh -huh. So these were basically compostable type materials. And then we were blending algae with those to make some different properties. So we did that for a few years. Um, we divested out of that. We still make the pellets, but we don't actually do the downstream stuff. It was just too much for our company to do the whole yeah, thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, but the, the idea behind it was really interesting because this was this started like in 2015 for us when we just started opening up and looking at footwear. So we were still in this kind of shotgun mode, shooting projects everywhere, seeing what kind of stuck. And with the 3D printing, it was a it's a niche market, mm -hmm. but it's high value. Mm -hmm. And you're working with typically companies or innovators as opposed to just like the general public. Totally. So it was something that allowed us to like me to reach out to Tesla or me to reach out to BMW or reach out to you know XYZ company, footwear, even some of the footwear brands. And they have 3D printers. They're, yep. pr they're printing stuff. So we started, um, we actually 3D printed a last for a shoe, which is kind of the shape of a, the orthopedic shape of a shoe that you use to build the shoe around. We had 3D printed one of those. So like, we were like looking at it as a way to kind of get our brand, our materials, the concept of algae into these companies at some level, right? So it's kind of like mm -hmm. the Trojan horse. Let's get it with some 3D printer filament. We, hey, algae's a real thing. I printed with it. I know it's real. I know we can do yeah, right. it now. The filament side was rigid. It was stiff. It was not a flexible foam. That was basically at the same time, our company had a parallel track of foam, flexible foam. Mm. And so ultimately the flexible foam, the market size, the customers, just 10 100 times bigger than 3d market so we we shifted all efforts to that uh in 2018 um so we no longer are in-house directly producing any 3d however i will say that we are working with some innovative new factories that are trying to decentralize manufacturing that are using 3d printing but in a unique way as opposed to 3d printing the part like let's say the sole of a shoe, which some people are doing, like like Audi's doing a, a future craft where it's the sole is actually 3D printed. Super cool, expensive, takes forever, takes a long time to make right. a part, right? Um, 
Instead, this, this one group we're working with, they're actually using the 3D printing as the tooling. Uh-huh. So as opposed to 3D printing the part, you're 3D printing tooling. That tooling basically is the mold that makes the part. So now you can, oh. you know, maybe it takes overnight to make that mold. But once you get the mold made, you can run thousands of hundreds of thousands of parts through sure. that mold. Sure. Uh, or through that from that tooling, so it's so it's a much so it basically we're combining kind of the best of 3D printing, yep. quick changeover, fast. You know, we can quickly print a, a new part, I mean, quickly overnight versus you know three months right now for lead time for stainless steel tooling to get mm-hmm. like steel molds made, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then we use that with a um, a thermoforming or packaging line that is all about high speed. Mm-hmm. So high speed molding of components for shoes using the right. bloom material as a substrate. And then once you get that part made, you're able to automate that process, get the cost down per unit. And that's really the only way you're going to be able to compete with China is yeah. by looking at in, implementing, um, you know, rapid tooling processes, uh, innovative manufacturing techniques that are high speed and automation where you've got a couple people running some HMIs that are basically cranking out millions of pairs of, mm-hmm. of parts. Uh, uh, for a shoe, or maybe even a, a, a simple shoe, a sandal, a flip flop, a, a cross sure. style sure. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's something that we're working on right now. Cool. All right. So, so I, again, I'm sitting here, I, I, my head's bursting with all the stuff I want to get to. Um, we're, we're kind of winding out of time here. I want to be conscious of your time and just the whole recording. We're going to do this again because there, there's so much in here. And I, I mean, literally, Part of my question there is also just looking forward saying it feels like you guys are also not a supplier of the material into <coughs> current manufacturing, but for future manufacturing, you may create a form for map of your substance that's in 3D printable form, not not actually build 3D printers, but be the wholesaler of wholesalers that is refining this algae in a way that makes it 3d printable. And you're just delivering an, you know, an indirect model to all these 3d print, you know, let the 3d printing world figure it out. You know, you guys are just sitting here waiting, Hey, we've got a substance that's 3d printable. Right. And it's by the way, it's just hundred percent renewable, uh, biodegradable, yada, 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 yada. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. We've been sitting in yeah. that position for a few years now. Um, yep. We worked with a company called 3D Print Life. Uh, they've been kind of taking over that business. They distribute, they, whenever they need to produce more filament, they contact us. We make the pellets, right. we the pellets, they do, they turn it back into filament and brand it and package it. And so that for us, when we, when we started that, you know, we were responsible for the branding, the packaging, the distribution, the, 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 I mean, the Amazon store, the, the micro centers, totally. like all that. So we did it from ground up and, um, and through that, we also did a bunch of lean six Sigma training internally. So yep. we got green belts and black belts. You know, we did a lot of, uh, lean manufacturing. We did a lot of marketing. We did website development. I mean, the whole nine yards, it was sure. re- educational, but really tough. It was really yeah, hard. Right. Right. Well, Hey, again, welcome to entrepreneurship, man. You kind of, yeah. you never know what your job's going to be on any given day, right? You're going to be doing all sorts of stuff. So yeah. Ryan, let me, let me wind down a little bit. So, so what's kind of on the horizon here? I mean, I, I, you know, a couple of things and, and, you know, whatever you want to talk about, but at the same time, like, it just feels like algae has been around for a while, but we're at this, we're at this very interesting moment where circularity and sustainability is maybe finally going to take hold because we've been talking about it for God knows how long. Right. But now it seems like you talked about corporate responsibility, investors, public companies, 
even I'd go so far as to say it's transparency because you talk a lot about that, right? There's the transparency. People just didn't know what was going on in our supply chains. Now that people are awake, you know, like blood diamonds, you know, or the thing, it's like, do you really realize what goes into this thing? Right. And so that's, that's changing everyone's buying habits and thinking and what's the right thing to do. But algae again is one of these substances. I've heard about algae for decades. So it feels like it's one of those things that's waiting for us to figure out how to use. It's, it's, it's not that it's, you know, it, it is what it is. We just haven't figured out how to best go back to the source of what actually petroleum is, which is algae and use it like, like, like you're, you're going back to the roots. Um, so what, what do you see in the, like in this sort of you no know, next few years? I mean, it sounds like you've kind of crossed a little bit of the chasm yourself. You're in a business that's now got some profitability to it, but the whole industry is shifting in this direction. Like what's, what's, yeah. Yeah. I think the trade wars, the COVID issues, even the Ukrainian war that's recent, I mean, all these things have been horrible for the world. Uh, very, very horrible for the world. And, but, but I guess the silver lining is that it has awakened a lot of people to what's really, what, 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 what our sensitivities are, where's our vulnerabilities and certainly putting all of our eggs in one manufacturing basket is, is a problem, both from a sustainability perspective and from a transparency perspective and from just like getting your stuff on time. Yeah. Right. So companies are trying to diversify. They're looking at reshoring. They're looking at, um, decentralizing. Uh, they're trying to find backup plans. So I, I think that, you know, algae has a, a, a promising future. I, there's a lot more work to do. I mean, we still can't make 100% algae shoe. Yeah, right. um, we're, far, we're far away from that. We, you know, we're, we're trying to just get the basics done. And, and the challenge that we found is that even the simplest, easiest approach to get algae into products is fed, has been met with a lot of resistance and complications around getting that adopted into a foreign supply chain. You know, it's expensive. It, it, there's, there's tariffs, there's duties, there's pushback from factories is different. It's new. It's, it's, it smells a little bit, you know, like there's always little factors that, sure. you know, it, it make it tough. So I, I think that, you know, we're going to see a continued movement towards sustainability. I think it is, like, as you said, it is something that is here to stay. I don't think it's going away. I think now it's like, okay, how do we figure it out? The big publicly traded companies that we work with, 2025 to 2030, there's some big goals around using recycled and bio-based materials of the majority of their products. I mean, in some cases, 100% of the product should be mm-hmm. produced from bio-based or recycled materials or regenerative materials. So mm-hmm. um, so that's, I mean, whether they're going to achieve that goal in that time frame, we'll see. Because a lot of these times, these are like, this is the CEO or the board saying this. And then this, you know, this, that trickles down to the doers, all the people, the product line managers, the designers, the developers, the material and the innovation teams. They now are like scrambling, trying yep. to figure out, okay, corporate set this goal. How in the hell are we going to hit it? Totally. You know, how are we going to hit it and maintain our costs, our costing yep. and our profitability? Because, you know, yeah, one thing for them to say, we're going to do this. It's another thing to say, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to lose 10% margin because of it. Yeah, totally, like, totally. once that second part comes in, it's it has to. So they're trying to find. So it's it's a it's it's a little bit chicken and the egg. It's scale, right? Like these yeah. new technologies, they're more expensive because they're tiny. They're just now starting, and we're tiny. We're a tiny little thing. Tiny. I mean, we did 17 million pairs of shoes. We were, Bloom was in 17 million pairs of shoes last year, but the the world produces about 30 billion pairs. Yeah. Oh no no. I mean, I, but the fact that you're even in 17 million is better than zero infinitely better than zero 
and it is like you said, crossing this chasm. I mean, people forget, and I know I got to wind down here and I know we could go for days here. You know, Tesla was, was bankrupt until Elon literally mortgaged everything in his entire existence to keep that thing going. But it was, it was going to go away. Right. And the car industry was hell bent and destroying that. Like they destroyed DeLorean and everybody else before it. So, I mean, the headwinds are there, like you said, but the, it's not incremental. It's a tectonic shift that you've already made in getting to 17 million pairs from zero. Like that's Matt, that's, that's more important than going from 17 million to, you know, a couple billion. I think yeah. like that's, that's really, the, the way I look at it is we we've we've already added like five or six zeros. We just got to add one or two more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you made the hardest part, Ryan. Listen, I, I again, like I said, we just keep going here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wind it down. But I, uh, you know, such a pleasure. I hope we get. Uh, I want to do another episode. I want to follow up. I think the 3D printing is a super exciting avenue. Not not to build them, but but a material that can be you guys already sit on that simultaneously can be crafted to go into direct manufacturing or into the future of 3d printing. Um, it's a really interesting, but, but we're going to see a lot more in automotive and, you know, yep. footwear and consumer products. So I, I think yep. that's the future for bloom is mostly footwear, but we are exploring these for, new now. for, for now. now, because that material that is used in footwear is used in a gazillion other applications. Exactly. Right. Right. Yep. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much. Been super pleasure. Have a great day. We're going to have a follow-up episode, but uh, this has just been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Been great. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at Requis.com.